0: Welcome back to The Lily Kate Show. Now, we have a very significant retirement this week. And no, unfortunately, it is not the president of the United States retiring, as he probably should. It is someone who is close to him in power. It is Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. He is retiring after 27 years of service on the top court in the nation. Forgive me. We had a very intense project this week, that's why I sound a little bit sick. The way he's retiring and the way the media's spinning it is overtly non-political. Talk to us about
1: the importance, the significance of Steve Breyer stepping down and what you think is probably his thinking. Well, as you know, Andrea, there was a discussion at the end of last term about whether he was gonna step down. It was clear that he had thought about it and then decided not to do so. He said publicly at the time, Uh, He had just written a book about the Supreme Court and about its legacy and why the country follows Supreme Court decisions, and he said that he, he didn't want the timing of his retirement to be seen as something political.
0: But the problem is, this is inherently a very political move. And now, yes, he's old. Yes, he definitely thought about retiring last year. Now is just an even more convenient time. Not only is it completely and entirely political and politically convenient, Joe Biden knows. And all the members of the Supreme Court and the high courts know that the Democrats are headed into 2022, the election season November, they're heading into a slaughterhouse. They know they're going to get overthrown for reasons because of inflation, how we dealt with Afghanistan, how we're dealing with Ukraine currently, and basically the quality of life of Americans has started to actually diminish. Like my groceries are a lot more expensive than they were originally under Donald Trump. And so for all those reasons, among others, the Democrats are going to get their ASSES handed to them in the November 2022 election season. That is why the Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring now. The president nominates the Supreme Court pick, then the Senate approves it. Currently, there is a one-seat Senate majority in the House. The Democrats aren't going to have that after November because this huge red tidal wave is coming. They're retiring him and going to try and cram a new one in during the summer before the Senate over. Overhaul of 2022. So obviously under Donald Trump, we had three different uh, Supreme Court nominations and all three of them ended up being actually relatively conservative and are, are going in the right direction. But Biden, of course, may only get one opportunity to nominate someone to the court. And a lot of people are really freaking out about this in a bad way. And I'm like, no, you shouldn't freak out about this in a bad way because under Trump, as I said, we got three nominations. Those were the swing votes. The reason why Brett Kavanaugh was such a massive hearing was because that was the swing vote. It was a liberal retirement, and Brett Kavanaugh, a more conservative figure, replaced him. But since we had that upload of three different Supreme Court justices through Trump's administration, all we're doing really is just replacing a liberal uh, Supreme Court justice with another liberal Supreme Court justice. And so, obviously, you know, time will tell we'll see how it goes but we do have some inclination on who this person who gets nominated to the supreme court might actually look like i
1: will nominate will be someone with extraordinary qualifications character experience and integrity and that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the united states supreme court It's long overdue in my
0: view. Joe Biden said that he was going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. So men, sorry, the seat's not open for you. And any other woman, any other color, any other type of woman, sorry, it's not available to you. Weirdly enough, there have been rumors that Joe Biden is actually going to nominate Kamala Harris, the current sitting vice president who has an approval rate, mind you, of 28 percent to the Supreme Court. Here's a reporter asking Jen Psaki about it. What preparations is the White House engaged in broadly in the case of a Supreme Court vacancy? I'm just not gonna detail any of that from here. Not about Unrelated
1: to this, you can't detail what, like, doesn't every White House like to get ahead of this in case of a sudden passing? In the case of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, none of that you can share? I'm not gonna detail internal planning from here, no. Okay, And let me ask you a couple other questions. Is there any scenario in which the President would select his Vice President Kamala Harris for the Supreme Court? Again, I'm not going to speak to uh, any considerations, preparations, lists. Um, and as we've stated earlier and you heard the President say, uh, it is there's a long history of Supreme Court justices determining when uh, they may retire, if they retire, and announcing that. Uh, and we're going to uh, — that remains the case today.
0: And, of course, you're going to be like, Lily, she obviously didn't say. However, if they were not thinking about it, they would definitely be able to confirm that they were not thinking about it. Kind of like in the uh, FBI hearing, Senator Ted Cruz was like, "What was the FBI's uh, involvement in January 6th? The lady on the phone, I cannot answer that.
1: I want to turn to the FBI. How many FBI agents or confidential informants actively participated in the events of January 6th?
0: Sir, I'm sure you can appreciate that I can't go into the specifics
1: of sources and methods. Did any FBI agents, any FBI agents or confidential agents or informants, informants, actively informants actively participate in the, the events British of January, 19th, 6th? Yes January 6th? Yes or no? Yes or no? Sir, can't, I can't answer that. Did any FBI agents or confidential FBI informants commit, commit crimes of violence on January 6th? I can't answer that, sir. Did any FBI agents any F- or FBI informants actively encourage and incite crimes of violence on January 6th? January 6th.
0: Sorry, I can't answer that. If they weren't involved, she would have just said no. And so if they weren't thinking about nominating Kamala Harris, Jen Psaki would just say, no, we're not thinking about that. But the thing is, is denial oftentimes means that they are thinking about it. you know recently there's been so much talk about women why women are important there's been so much ground shaking and culture shaking that's happening from the level of moms who are getting angry who are getting ready to rise up and obviously the left and the right both emphasize women an insane amount and that has led me to start thinking about how women are and can be the last line of defense to get to our children to get to the actual cultural and societal standards right women as I say a lot on this podcast always set the societal and cultural standards and men adhere to those standards as well. We are the ones who are nurturing and and creating and facilitating the growth of souls that come after us, right? We are the cultural beings. We are the relational beings. We are the beautiful beings, right? Men in their essence are not beautiful. Women are. And that beauty arouses something in society. We can insert life into things. But that has me thinking about when situations become dire, when it becomes time for everyone to be engaged in the fight, You know it's an intense time when the women choose to get involved, when the women have to get involved, when the women start stepping up to the plate and getting involved. And this is why it's so important to have women who are capable, who are ready, who are um, God fearing, who are in office. I alluded to earlier. We have this new show, and this new show is going to be called Sanity Check. It's where we go to your college campuses, and we test the sanity of the people on campus. And it, it, we filmed our first episode this past week at Texas A&M. With the quality of women there, it made me nervous for the future. It really did. Here are just two examples of questions that we ask some girls. Let me ask you, would it be wrong if there were only two genders? I mean, like... People feel how they want to feel. If they don't feel they fit into two genders, then they don't. Is, do you think it would be wrong if there were two genders? No, I don't think it's right. I think gender is like much more fluid. I don't think it makes sense. It should be just male and female because it's just it's a social construct. So like it's different than sex and gender. So yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Sex and gender are two different things. There's three sexes, technically, but gender is extremely diverse. So you can't really put a limit. Do you think abortion is men? Uh, no, but that's also personal preference, you know, like what you do with your body is not my choice. Question is, do you think abortion is mean? I don't think abortion's mean. I think abortion should be, like, legal for everywhere, because people have different situations. Sometimes people don't have the financial stability to be able to have a baby, and I would prefer, like... I wouldn't want a baby to grow up in like a foster care system, maybe not get a chance to be adopted at all. So it'd be a hard life. There's also the aspect of trauma. Somebody wouldn't want to keep a kid if it was from a traumatic experience. You would definitely want to get rid of that because I don't think it's ideal for somebody to grow up in a household knowing that like, hey, this was like the biggest mistake that's ever happened, I guess. Yeah, a um, little bit scary, a little bit crazy. And of course, these were girls that had pride flags and blue hair. So I'm sure there are some very sane women on the Tech a and campus as well. Also a plug, if you want us to bring our Sanity Check episodes, Carson Wolf and I, to your campus, please feel free to reach out to victoryofusa.com. That is the email we will be taking applications for. But the thing is, is that that is the next generation of women. Those girls are going to grow up, go into the workforce, are going to raise, I don't know, maybe families if they don't abort their own children. They are the ones who are the future right and family structure is so important women are the last line of defense of people who can defend themselves to the children they are the gateway to the children women can make and uphold that social change that the left and right are both searching after and this is why it's so important to have good women in office obviously the women on college campuses are often confused and we pray that they're going to find the truth and I don't want you to get blackpilled or depressed because their answers were so wacko but what I do want to do is introduce an elected official her name is Marilyn John she is in Ohio and And she's here to talk to us today about some incredible legislation that she has drafted and kind of what the future of the public education system is going to be like, because that is really the gateway to our future. Marilyn, John, are you there? I am here, Lily. Oh, thank you so much for coming on today. So obviously you are an elected official. Can you tell us about what legislation you've put forward and how you will defend children?
1: So it's great to be with you. I am working on a bill. I'm very excited about it. It's called the Backpack Bill, and it's in regards to education. The Backpack Bill would provide a scholarship program um, that would empower Ohio's students and their parents with the ability to make decisions for enrollment of the student in the school that is the best fit for that student. Public education tends to be a one-size-fits-all, and um, we know As a mom, I can tell you I have two children. As a mom, I can tell you that my children learned differently. Um, They are unique. um, And what worked for one didn't always work for the other. My children came up in public education. So public education did work for my children, but it doesn't work Mm -hmm. for all kids. And um, the backpack bill would empower parents and students to be able to make a choice for their education that would work best for that child.
0: Wow. And growing up as a homeschooler with five siblings, I'm one of six. I totally know what you mean. Just because it worked for my older brother did not mean it worked for me. For example, my brother went to Baylor University, a private prestigious college when he was 16 years old. I'm 19 now and I I didn't even attempt to go to college. I just knew it wasn't for me. And so you're exactly right about every kid is different. And with this government school, this I think we call it public education, but really it's government run It's state school. I think we need to start calling it out for what it is, right? It's a one-size-fits-all with STEM, um, people learning so much about STEM, not emphasizing art, not emphasizing the humanities, and then taking these SATs, right? There's only one way of success that we measure in our public schools. And so I love how this almost legislates like an individuality for academics and education. So you kind of explained it, but if you would just go into it a little bit more in depth, what is the intended purpose of the legislation so that we can all have a better understanding of how it's going to affect people.
1: So specifically how it works, there are three pots of money that come together to support the education of a child in the state of Ohio. We have money that comes from the federal government to help support school public schools. We have money that we allocate in our state budget. It's actually... Um, one of the largest allocations in the state budget goes to public schools. And then we have individual communities, local communities that have levies that also s- support public education. So those three pots, federal, state, local. What the backpack bill will do is establish an education savings account through our state treasurer's office, that's the who we're working with right now, mm-hmm. in, and and. The state portion of the dollars would go into, if if the parents would so choose, would go into an education savings account and Mm -hmm. whatever the parent then would choose as the best option for their child, they could be reimbursed for those um, costs out of that account. You mentioned that you were a homeschool um, student. There were still costs associated with your education that your parents took on um, in order to make the a decision that was in your best interest. The the backpack bill would allow parents who make those same choices to be reimbursed for the cost of homeschooling their child or sending their child to a private school or a parochial school. Um, They would be able to be reimbursed. Those costs through the backpack program.
0: Wow, that's incredible! And obviously, there's so many uh, types of objections to. I can't homeschool my child. I can't private school my child. It's too expensive. And so, this bill not only appeals to the people who are in a situation where they're struggling to be able to and incentivize them to choose what's right. It also um, appeals to the crowd, as you know, right? There's the cultural crowd of the Republican party. And then there's the tax crowd that the ultimate evil is socialism. And so it appeals to actually both sides, I believe of what we need to emphasize as the Republican party, um, something that can unify us. I must ask though, the, the phrase backpack bill, it's so brilliant. It's so subtle. Um, it's so good natured. It's very, it's not insidious, but like insidious in a good way. You don't expect it. And uh, so how did you get the idea to come up with it and call it backpack bill? I love, that.
1: So I can't take credit for that. I wish I could because I agree with you. I think it is brilliant. Um, you know, when you see students heading off to school, I know my kids every night we would get their backpacks ready and they would head off to school on um, the next morning with their backpacks and they're filled with books and and the tools that they needed for their education. And the backpack bill does just that. It's a, yeah. It takes the tools or financial tools that, that a student needs for their education and it puts it with that child just like a backpack would.
0: I love it. It's so creative and it's so spot on to exactly what um, the legislation is doing. So then I must ask, obviously this is such an important bill. So in the state of Ohio, what is the status of this bill? Has it passed? Is it in committee? Uh, can you give us a little brief on w- what the whereabouts are?
1: We are getting ready to head into committee, but the I am a a joint sponsor with Representative Reardon McLean. And we're both working with interested parties right now. You know, we wanna give this the best shot possible when we get started. And so we're working with interested parties. We're also working with different departments of the administration, such as the the treasurer of the state of Ohio, his office, to finalize some of the language. I have a meeting um, next week um, to help finalize the the language and answer questions. You know, I'm also working with the business community. I'm reaching out to them because a child's education, K-12, K-12, college, whatever that is, also impacts our workforce, our future workforce. Mm, And that is an issue that every state in this country is dealing with, every company in this country is dealing with. And so um, if we can improve our K-12 education and... Fill a child's backpack heading into adulthood with all of the tools that they need to be successful. Um, that helps our business community, and that helps every American thrive. And so wow. I'm working with the the um, business community right now to see their thoughts on education. and they have lots of thoughts on education and what we can do to improve education so that the workers of tomorrow, the employees of tomorrow, the leaders, of tomorrow are equipped as they're heading into those positions.
0: I have no no words. That's just amazing, seriously. And so obviously we want this to go national, not only because it, it emphasizes the local state and it emphasizes, emphasizes the federal. And so are any other states possibly looking to adopt it? Kind of what's the plan to bring this to Texas? We need it here as much as we need it in Florida, Ohio, California, as much as we need it in these other states.
1: Well, it is being discussed in many state houses across the country. Specifically, um, Arizona and West Virginia has passed legislation, and we have looked at that legislation. Uh, we have we have taken a lot of things from that legislation. Um, another state, I know uh, Governor Youngkin from Virginia, that was awesome. one of the things he discussed um, at length during the campaign. And so there are many states around the country that are looking at it. A lot of um, emphasis has been placed on education recently, and I That's think so um, the epidemic has shown parents what is actually happening when it comes to curriculum and what is being taught to their children. Uh, we should have been paying better attention, <laughs> And but the epidemic, if you can look at some things that were positive from it, that is one of the things that was positive is that parents really came to grips with Wow, I didn't realize that this is what was being taught to my child in school and I don't think I agree with that. So, um, I that that has brought up the discussion across the country and I agree with you. I think that that this bill needs to go national and uh, hopefully we can see that happening even more as the time
0: goes yeah. on. And uh Awesomely enough, I predict that will happen, honestly, with this new 2022 election season because the Democrats are about to walk into a slaughterhouse in in a way. Um, But you kind of emphasized this earlier, and I want to kind of go deeper into this because this podcast has been about how women are the last line of defense. You know situations are dire when the women step up to fight and take this mantle on and say, no, we're going to fight in the culture. We're going to run for office. We're going to do all these things. So I want to ask, how has having— a family affected your drafting and writing of this legislation? And overall, how has it affected your time as an elected official?
1: Well, as I mentioned, I'm a mom. Um, it's one of my most favorite roles and and the <laughs> toughest job I have ever, ever done. Way tougher than being an elected official. Um, okay. But it also has given me a perspective um, that I share with many of my legislators um, that Our children are the most important thing that we talk about, really, Um, Mm -hmm. because they are our future leaders. Um, They are our future employees. They are going to be making decisions um, just like as I was coming up and and the impact that my parents had on me. Um, I think that having the perspective of moms um, in in our state legislatures and in our um, in congress has Mm -hmm. been very important and critical i wish that we were all respected across the board though Um, one of the things that we were talking about as we were getting started um, you and i is the impact of even feminism right and as a woman serving as an elected official for 12 years i'm not really supported by a lot of women's groups because i'm a conservative (laughs) And so um, they're not interested in supporting all women, only women with the same voice that they have. They are not interested in, it's They. I find it curious that they want diversity in thought, but they don't really want diversity in thought.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They only support the women who deny having a family who are the independent boss queen CEOs who are competing and awful to other women and who are trying to compare themselves and be better and one up the men in the workplace that, you know, typing out Excel spreadsheets for the rest of your life is the highest calling of a woman and you know, the only time of enjoyment you get is drinking margaritas on the weekend with your girlfriends. And, you know, that's just not a life of fulfillment. That is not a life of femininity. And I love that you are bringing that feminine aspect to Um, the government, because as much as we love to emphasize the building and and the power of masculinity, femininity is even more powerful in that way. And I do believe in the workplace and in government and in the home, we need femininity. Femininity is one of those vitalizing, life-giving forces. And once you drain a woman of that, then there's going to be an instant limit on what she can accomplish. Um, But something that you know people (laughs) for some reason have a hard time understanding is right the government is supposed to protect its citizens and then we say the state government is supposed to protect their state citizens and then local governments are supposed to have interest in the community the local community and then on the family level the husband protects the wife and the child the wife then protects you know the child and cares for the husband and it's this really beautiful dynamic um, structure that has been set up through western civilization and from the influence of the Bible, as we know. And so what we have now, unfortunately, is fathers who are at liberty to walk away from the family whenever they want, a government that is more interested in protecting Ukrainian citizens or citizens from uh, Taiwan more than they are interested in protecting their citizens like me, who's down in Houston, a few miles from the southern border, right? And we have this kind of this uh, misunderstanding of the roles of who is protecting who and who is at liberty to protect who. And so my question to you is, can you explain to us how important it is to protect children from the federal government?
1: Well, many leaders have talked about when the government comes knocking, beware. Mm. And um, I, I believe that. Um, but I also think we need to go back to a government of the people and by the people. And we need to remember what our role as citizens of this amazing country, what is our role? Our role is to elect leaders that understand they work for us. I remember the first um, position I had was the mayor of my community, Shelby, Ohio. And um, I had somebody ask me about who I report to. I said, well, I report to the 9,000 people that live here. I work for them. When I became a county commissioner, I worked for the 125,000 people that lived in my county. And I do the same thing. I represent that same constituent base now. I work for the people of my district. And government has gotten away from understanding that we work for the people. And um, we are employed by them. So I think that the backpack bill gives that power back to the people. Mm, And that's that's what I love about it is is we get to take back parts of our country that maybe we haven't been paying enough attention to. Mm. Um, And, you know, this is not an anti-public education bill. It is a pro-student and family bill.
0: Wow. Yeah. People always say you can't legislate morality and you can't legislate the culture. Well, every law is a reflection of the moral law. Every piece of legislation that is drafted is a reflection of what structures we value and what we don't value. And clearly the values in here are family, our excellence of academics of, um, you know, helping people who are in need and incentivizing people to make the right decisions based on the uniqueness of their child. There's nothing wrong about this bill. I'm totally obsessed with it. And I cannot wait for it to come to Texas. So my last question for you is projecting into the future. Obviously, I'm going to be a mom someday. I'm going to have literally 17 children. I already know who it's going to be, the guy I'm going to marry. You know, I'm excited for that part of my life. So I'm going to homeschool my children, but there are going to be people who are going to be in these government schools. And so in your opinion, what should the future of government public education actually be in the USA?
1: I think number one, we have to raise the bar, Mm -hmm. not lower the bar. We've lowered the bar enough across this country in so many ways. We need to raise the bar and help our children achieve great things. Um, and we can do that through all types of education, whether it's homeschooling, private school, public schools. You know, there's a study out there there's, um, from, I believe it's out of Arizona, that their voucher program um, actually improves the quality of public education because it brings competition to public education. And so... Free
0: market at work.
1: Yes, the free market. One of the things this country was founded on, free market and free market principles. And when there's competition, it helps us all lift up. It helps us to raise the bar so that we can be better and compete. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing to happen is that when it comes to public education, when it comes to the government, we need to be raising the bar, not lowering it.
0: Mm. That's excellent. Well, Marilyn, this was a very insightful podcast episode. Thank you so much for being here today. Best of luck getting it passed in committee. And I cannot wait for this to go national because I project that it will.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Lily. It was great visiting with you.